Well, we're going we're gonna to take a, a two-week break out of the uh, Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at a couple psalms. I figured the psalms are 150 chapters, and preaching 150 straight psalms would be a lot. So I figured every once in a while we'll just kind of go in and grab a couple psalms. So today we're going to be in Psalm 107. And when I was growing up, you know, the slogan, the happiest place on earth, right? You've all heard of the happiest place on earth, right? I feel like there should be some feedback. We know the happiest place on earth, right? Disneyland. Well, for me, the happiest place on earth was my grandfather's farm in Bakersfield. And we would go down to Bakersfield, and there wasn't anything that my grandfather, Paul, couldn't do. We would go down, and he would have a coffee can, old coffee can, halfway full of dirt, and we would just walk around the farm, and he would catch whatever would bite his finger and put it in the can. So he would just stick his hand in a hole and just kind of wiggle his fingers, and if something bit, he would pull it out. Snakes, gopher snakes, lizards, skinks, just whatever bit him, we would bring home as a pet for a little while and then let it go in the yard. He would find and smash black widows with his fingers. He had a, he had a basketball hoop at, in a tack room next to the uh, horses, and it was like, I don't know, the basketball hoop had to be like 20 feet up in the air. It was, it was way too high to actually play basketball. And I remember asking him, you've got a ridiculously high basketball hoop, but I don't see a basketball. And he pointed over to a rock that had to be about three feet in circumference. And he said, that's what I use when I play. <laughs> and he had gone up to the mountains dug this rock out of the ground, put it on his truck, brought it all the way back down to Bakersfield just so he could tell that joke. <laughs> it's a lot of work for a mediocre joke. You know, but no matter what he did, I always felt like he could do anything. You know, when I was a kid, he was, he was superhuman, and he literally could do anything that, that I thought couldn't be done. When I was probably... I don't know, 14 or 15, he was 70, something like that. And he challenged me to a race, like a foot race. And I play sports and I was athletic and he's 70 and wearing Wranglers and cowboy boots. And he, I don't remember what the bet was, but it was like, if you beat me, we'll do this. If I beat you, you owe me this kind of thing. And I was like, okay, sure. I kid you not, he whooped me. <laughs> like at 70 years old. And that was just the kind of man he was. He had this big shop on the farm. And again, being a kid, it was like a mile wide and two miles deep. But it was a normal metal shop barn. And inside was treasure. Like when I was a kid, there was like so much treasure in there that I just wanted to look at and see. And then back in the corner of the shop was a sea train, you know, like the ones that go on flatbeds of trucks and they travel across the sea, go on train cars, sea train. It was like 40-foot container, and inside the container was the actual treasure. He had a car parked in front of it, and so nobody could get in it, and the shop was locked, the farm was guarded, but inside there were more padlocks stopping anybody from getting in. And one time, my whole life, one time he opened it. And I was, I was probably like 10, 
And so in my mind, there was like, it was like glittering, you know, it was like gold and stuff. But I, I know it wasn't, but that's how my mind remembers it. And he opened this door, and that was where the actually valuable things was. So he had, you know, gun safes and whatever else was of value to him. But then in the very back of the C-train, sitting evenly spaced between the walls and evenly spaced from the back, was an old chair, just like an old armchair. I just assumed it was old and valuable, but it was kind of back there by itself. And I remember asking him, what's with the chair? Why is there a chair back there all by itself? And he told me, that's where I'm going to die. I'm going to die in the chair, and I'm going to set fire to everything and burn it all down. And that was the chair that he had planned to do it from. Fast forward another 10 or 15 years, and he's now at the end of his life. And I drove down to Bakersfield to see him. It was probably 15 years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. And he had a rough life growing up. His family immigrated from Italy, and he was first-generation American. And they had a rough life, and he started drinking when he was about 12 and never stopped all his life. I think there was probably a one-week span that he didn't drink when he was in rehab. But other than that, alcohol was his constant companion. And so when I visited him for the last time, I went down and saw him, and he was maybe 30 or 40 feet from the chair. He was outside in a small run-down travel trailer, and he was sitting there. And I told him, you're looking for something. What do you hope to find with the alcohol? What do you hope to find? What's your goal? What's the purpose? There's no hope. There's no goal. There's no purpose. So I told him, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to give purpose, to give you hope in your hopelessness, to give you whatever it is that you're looking for. Some of the last words he said to me were, I have what I'm looking for. And he held up a bottle of Jack Daniels. Everybody's looking for something. The world has a hopelessness and a restlessness Psalm 107 calls it a desolate wilderness. The end of his life was not magical. But in my childhood, it really wasn't magical either. It was my perception of his life was magical. As I grew up and I realized, though, that he was the picture of Psalm 107. Psalm 107, the first three verses, look back the Israelites are living in the days of Psalm 107, and they're looking back historically at what had happened. And the Israelites, as you know, went through these times of wilderness over and over. They walked away from God, and God redeemed them and saved them. And they would walk away from God, and God would redeem them and save them. And this pattern is repeated. And the people in verse 1 are saying, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
They're looking back on all these times and saying the reason that we give thanks is because we know the Lord is good. Their evidence is the second part of that. His faithful love endures forever. They had this historical perspective that God is good and that his faithful love endures forever. As a result, the people let, us re- let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim that he has redeemed them from the power of the foe. A great response to knowing that the Lord is faithful is to proclaim his goodness and that he has gathered them from the lands, from the east and the west, from the north and the south. The people who knew that they had often walked away from God are able to look back and say, God is good because he doesn't leave us out in the wilderness. He doesn't leave us and just let us go, but he redeems us. He gathers us from the east and the west and the north and the south. As Jesus would put it in some of his last words, go and make disciples of all nations. Gathering from the east and the west and the north and the south. For us, that starts at home. You know, it branches out to our friends and our family and our neighbors and our coworkers and our city and our state and our nation and the ends of the earth. All peoples that God seeks to gather, north, south, east, and west. You know, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, the Apostle Paul says to pray for open doors. And yesterday, I prayed and opened the door. I was sitting and working on my notes for today, and I looked out the window, and two men wearing white dress shirts and ties, and along with a boy, were standing kind of at the street, and they were looking inquisitively kind of at my house, And so I was watching them through the window, and they were looking, and I was looking, and I was waiting to see if they were going to come in. And so I just prayed, Lord, let your will be done, whatever that is. I'm busy, but if you've got other plans, then you've got other plans. And then they did, and they walked in, and so they walked toward the front door, and in the house I walked toward the front door, and we met at the door, and right as they knocked, I opened it. And he said, hey, you know, introduced himself and said, do you believe that people can live forever? I said, I do. And he said, well, I see you have your Bible. You know, do you read the Bible? I said, I do. And he said, what do you do? I said, well, I'm a pastor. He's like, oh, good. And so he showed me, you know, a psalm that says, you know, something about people living forever. I don't remember what it was. And I said, you guys want to come in and talk for a few minutes? And he looked at the other guy and he was like, I guess. Yeah, we can come in. So they came and sat down. And... I'm not an expert on Jehovah's Witnesses, but I know a couple things. And number one is that they rely heavily on doing good things and and works that God might reward them. And that's what he explained to me was God is a rewarder of good and a rewarder of evil. And I said, so how do you be saved? You know, what does it mean that someone is saved? And he said, you know, you have to have faith and you have to do the good things that God calls you to do. And I said, okay, what if somebody has faith but doesn't do good things? Or what if somebody has faith and does bad things? Or what if somebody has good things and doesn't have faith? How inextricably linked are faith and the good works? And so he said, well, let's look at James. And so James says, you know, faith without works is dead. I said, yeah, I, I get that. I agree that if you have saving faith and they don't produce good works, then something's wrong somewhere in that path, but it doesn't say faith and works go together. So 
what does it mean to be saved? And I continued to challenge him on what does it mean to be saved, and he kind of continued to, you know, kind of dance around what it means to be saved. And I said, you have to have faith, you have to have belief, and you have to know in whom you have faith. You know, without Jesus, that's another thing that I know they believe is Jesus is not God. He is a man and not God. So how then can a man save us from our sins? If, can I save you from your sins? Well, of course not. But if Jesus is only a man, how can— And so, I, you know, we kind of went around and around, and so I took him to John 10, where Jesus is having this discussion with the Pharisees. And Jesus and the Pharisees are kind of at this point of contention, and the Pharisees, almost frustrated, said to Jesus, just tell us plainly, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Jesus said, I told you. You're just not listening. My sheep hear my voice, and nobody snatches them out of my hand. And nobody snatches them out of God's hand. And I and the Father are one. And so I, you know, said, what does that mean that, that, that believers are in Jesus' hand and no one can snatch them out? And they're in God's hand. Are there two different places? Are they one hand? It seems like from the next part, I and the Father are one means that they're one. And he said, oh, you believe in the Trinity. And I was like, well, now that you mention it, you know, that— we created that the heavens and the earth and you know that all three god the father god the son and the holy spirit all have claimed that they raised jesus from the dead and it's it's a little tricky to disconnect those things and so i said well let's keep reading in john 10 and somewhere like around verse 30 the pharisees then want to stone jesus and jesus says well, which one of the miracles do you want to stone me for you know, it's like I healed people, I walked on water, you know, I made the bread. Like, what are you stoning me for, Jesus says. And they say, we're not stoning you for a miracle. We're stoning you because you, a mere man, have claimed to be God. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said, I and the Father are one. And if Jesus and the Father are both God, and they want to kill Jesus— because he has claimed to be God, then, then that path of where we are in Jehovah's Witnesses diverge really quickly. Because a man cannot save you from your sins, and a man is not holy and righteous if he claims to be something he's not. Which only leaves one option. At which point he realized he had to leave because he was late for something. <laughs> and so you can pray for them that you know, I texted him my number and told him you can come find me here during the week or just text me and, you know, just pray that the Lord reaches out. And, you know, when God calls people and he gathers them from the east and the west and the north and the south, he does it through ways that we often don't recognize. And that's the pattern that we have in all four of these sections of Psalm 107. There's four distinct pictures of what a problem is and how God solves it. And there's four pictures of problem, solution, and every problem, the solution is that God is sovereign. Sovereign means that God has the power, the absolute power, to do anything and everything he desires. There is nothing that God cannot do 
that he wants to do. And that's what it means that God is sovereign. So let's look at the sovereignty of God, starting in verse 4. It says that some wandered in the, wilderness, the desolate wilderness. That's, like I said, the picture of the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Some wandered in the desolate wilderness, finding no way to a city where they could live. They were hungry and thirsty, and their spirits failed within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. So they were literally dying out in the desert. There was no safe refuge. There was no city. They were hungry and they were thirsty. And they continued to wander so long that their spirits, literally their souls, their desires, their willpower, fainted within them. They just had nothing left to try and keep going. And they were lost. And to be lost means different things. You know, when I've been lost, it doesn't mean that I'm hungry and thirsty in a desolate wilderness about to die. To them, that's what lost meant. During World War II, there was a man named Louis Zamperini, and he took a flight out of the army base in Hawaii, and they looked south, about 800 miles from Hawaii, looking for wreckage of a plane that had been gunned down. And as they got where they thought the plane had gone down, they had a mechanical failure in their plane. And so Zamperini and the other 11 men on board crashed into the ocean, and ultimately nine of them died. Zamperini and one other man survived on a makeshift raft with sharks attacking them and fending off sharks with the one piece of wood they could find. Japanese bombers were strafing them with gunfire over and over and trying to hit them. They ate raw birds and whatever fish they could catch. And after 47 days, they finally landed on an island. And turns out it was a Japanese-controlled island. So they were immediately prisoners of war. And for two years, Zamperini and his colleague were beaten and brutalized. He was lost at sea, eventually missing an action, and finally killed an action, according to the official reports. Well, two years, after the, two years later, when the war ended, he was returned home. But he was more lost than ever. He had anger at all of his captors. He had anger that all of this had happened to him. And so he turned to alcohol and further lost himself into alcohol. And I, 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 I kid you not, every single one of these stories is the same. I feel like you could just grab some random name and put it into this story because he was so lost and his wife begged him to go to a Billy Graham crusade. And he goes and he hears the good news and God saves him out of his mess and rescues him. And he turns to the Lord like every one of these stories, it's like even verse 6, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he rescued them from their distress. It's a picture of the Israelites. It's a picture of me. It's a picture of you. I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. You know, the, the wilderness purpose is verse 6, that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them. God brings these times in our life 
These times of wilderness, these times of wandering, these times of hunger and thirst and bitter heat and freezing cold and friends turning into enemies and spouses so that they would turn and cry out to the Lord and he would rescue them from their trouble. That is relatable to every single one of us. He led them, verse 7, like a compass on the right path to a city where they could live, and he said, let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love, his wondrous works for all humanity. He has satisfied the thirsty and filled the hungry with good things. And if you've ever felt that, like you are wandering in a desolate wilderness, like you are just out there on your own, wandering, hungry, but having no bread, thirsty, but having no water, your spirit surrendering and saying, whatever happens, happens. And Jesus came and he said, I'm the bread of life. You're thirsty, he's the living water. If you're lost, he came to seek and save the found, seek and save the lost that they would be found. If you're restless, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And just like here, he rescues us. Colossians, Paul says, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. When we are lost and wandering in our darkness, wandering in a desolate wilderness, God comes and says, if you're hungry, I am bread. If you're thirsty, I am water. If you're lost, I am found. If you're looking for refuge, I am a strong tower. The Israelites learned from their wandering and from the desolate wilderness that only God is the one that can save and rescue them from their distress. And in all of this, even when they are lost, God is still sovereign over their desolate wilderness, over their wandering, and over their hunger and thirst. Verse 10, when we are hopeless, God is still sovereign. Verse 10 says, Others sat in darkness and gloom, prisoners in cruel chains, because they rebelled against God's commands. They despised the counsel of the Most High. He broke their spirits with hard labor and they stumbled and there was no one to help. That is a very severe picture. Look at that again. They sat in darkness. You know, darkness is often separation from God. You know, Jesus says that I am the light of all mankind, but the men loved their darkness. They loved their wickedness. So they sat in darkness. Gloom literally means in the shadow of death. So they were in, you know, spiritual darkness and they sat in the shadow of death about to die. They were in cruel chains. And there's a reason, verse 11, because they rebelled against God's commands, God's word, his law, and they despised the counsel of the Most High. So that's who they were, living in darkness, choosing to reject and choosing to despise what God had said. And as a result, 
He, verse 12, broke their spirits with hard labor. They stumbled and there was no one to help. And these are wicked people. Like literally despising, being God's chosen people and despising and rejecting him. Throughout the Old Testament, they tell God, we don't want you anymore, we want the gods of the Egyptians. We don't want you anymore, we want this other God because she gives us good things. And God breaks their will because they are so wicked. You know, I've met people, and you've probably met people that you look at and you're like, that person is unsavable. That person is unlovable. If nothing else, that person is too far gone. Unsavable, unlovable, too far gone. See, when, when we think those things about people, it's because we want to bring God down to a level that we can understand. We have a low view of who God is. And so we want to say, those people are so wicked that they're unsavable. And so we project those feelings onto God that God can't save those people because they're wicked and they're living in darkness and in the shadow of death and they despise God and they despise the word of God and they live lives that are in direct opposition to God. And a low view of God brings God down to our level and we then can understand who we think God is. And if I don't like that person, then certainly God doesn't like that person. And if I don't think they're savable, then God doesn't want to save that person. And the problem is that we want God to be understandable and we want him to be low and think those thoughts like we do when we think that someone is unsavable. A.W. Tozer says that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils, and a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. When we have a low view of God, now we're taking our opinions of someone and putting them on God as if they are his opinions. But when we recognize that God is sovereign over all things and we can't and never will understand what God does or how he does it, we leave God to do the sovereignty and we do the obeying. And that solves all of our temporal problems because we allow God to be God and we allow us not to be people who also rebel and reject his commands. But too often the problem is we think that you know, we can't understand why God would save someone who's lovable. Because we wouldn't save someone who's unlovable. We wouldn't want to save someone who's too far gone. That we wouldn't leave the 99 to go after the one. That we wouldn't send our son to sacrifice for that person. And that's a low view of God. To have a high view of God, to recognize that God is sovereign, is to recognize that when we've been in heaven a hundred billion years or whatever number you want to use for an extremely long amount of time spent in heaven, that we still will not even begin to understand who God is. We won't have one percent of understanding of who God is. God's nature, God's sovereignty over all things is not something we will ever be able to grasp. And so we just say to the Lord, you are sovereign over all things. 
and I don't often understand what you do or why you do it, but that doesn't mean that God is not sovereign. That means that I am incapable of understanding what God does and why God chooses to do it. And I think while some of us look at someone else and say that person is unsavable and unlovable and too far gone, I know there are other people that think that about themselves. I am unsavable. I am unlovable. The extreme sins that I have have made me too far from God for him to love me. And that's also a low view of God. It's a view of God that says he can't, he won't, he chooses not to because of what I've done. God's forgiveness of us is not based on us. God's forgiveness of us is based on who God is. God's forgiveness does not depend on our goodness. God's forgiveness does not depend on our wickedness. God's forgiveness of us depends on his goodness. We don't add to God's saving work by helping him because we're good people. We don't increase the difficulty of God's saving work because we are wicked people. God is sovereign over all those things. And when God saves, he does not save because of who we are. He saves because of who he is. And that's the difference. We are not saved on the basis of our merit or the things that we do. We are saved on God's merit and the things that he does. So even though we often sit in darkness and gloom, it's a darkness that Jesus makes run. And when we feel hopeless, have hope, take courage when you're feeling lost, that they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them from their darkness. In verse 14, he brought them out of the darkness and gloom and broke their chains apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. For he has broken down the bronze gates and cut through the iron bars. They cried out to the Lord and he saved them from their prisons and he liberated them to a new life. When my grandpa Paul and I would be driving around, he would sometimes pull over just near a random field and stop and be like, hey, do you want some corn? I'm like, I, I don't, and he's out of the truck already, like going, walking over to a field, grabbing a, an ear of corn off some random field and just like tossing it into the truck window. And I'm like, thanks, you know? <laughs> and then I remember another time he said, like, just stopped again, like, you want some watermelon? I'm like, it's nine o'clock in the morning, I guess. I want watermelon. And he goes and just in a field, cuts a watermelon off a vine and just walks back and sets it on my lap. And I asked him after the watermelon, isn't someone going to get upset that you're stealing watermelons from them? I mean, it just seems like something that somebody would be upset about. And he said, I'm not stealing anything. I'm liberating that watermelon. <laughs> that watermelon's meant to be free. I'm just setting it free. Turns out he knew everybody in town and like they were all friends and so 
again, it was easy for me to be fooled. <laughs> Speaking of, verse 17, fools suffered affliction because of their rebellious ways and their iniquities. These fools were self-inflicted and self-afflicted. They were choosing destruction because of their deliberate disobedience to God. They deliberately chose to disobey, and they got sick. And here's the problem. 18, they loathed all food, and they came near the gates of death. They were almost dead because they were foolish, because they rebelled, and because they deliberately disobeyed God. And then, again, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and they found that the Lord was never too far away. From those who are deliberately disobedient, from those who are so foolish that they're suffering affliction, that they are physically and spiritually sick near the gates of death, whether that is literal, almost dead, or whether that is a metaphor for eternally dead, they cried out to the Lord, and he saved them from their distress. In God's mercy, he gave them what they did not deserve. They deserved death. They were foolish and self-afflicted, and they were disobedient and rebellious. And yet they cried out to God, and in his mercy, he saved them. And notice verse 20, that he sent his word, and his word healed them. In verse 11, it says that they rebelled against God's commands, his word. And to heal them, he sent his word. I don't think we can overestimate the importance of God's word. All of God's commands, all of God's statutes and his ordinances and his teachings for us, if there's anything else beyond what we need, it's written right here. Everything that we need for life and for living and for pursuing and knowing God is right in his word. That's how he healed them, through his word. And furthermore, verse 20, he rescued them from the pit. So they ought to give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. You know, Paul talks about in 1 Timothy 15 and 16 that he was the worst of all mankind, the worst sinners. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Here's Paul's statement. Christ us into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason— so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, I am the worst sinner so that God can demonstrate even in the worst of sinners, he is patient and he offers salvation and he offers healing and he offers to redeem the absolute worst, disobedient, foolish, rebellious, sinful people and heal them and lift them up out of the pit. You know, Paul's willing to say, man, I am the worst, but in the worst, God can do great things. God in the worst is still sovereign. God in the worst chooses to use me as an example to others who believe. In that same idea, God uses you and your story to reach other people. Paul was the worst of sinners. You're not the worst of sinners, but you're still sinners. 
And in that sin, God uses that to demonstrate his unending forgiveness. That's the story we have to tell, that I was once in the desolate wilderness. I was once a fool who suffered affliction because of my rebellious ways. And yet God chose to save me. He sent his word, and hearing comes through the word of Christ, and we hear and we obey because of the word of God. And because of that, we offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and announce his works with shouts of joy. Again, a third picture of they cried out to God in their trouble and he saved them from their distress. The last one here is very different. It starts and it talks about the seagoing people and the Israelites were not seagoing people. The only time that the Bible talks about in the Old Testament, to my knowledge and memory, is Solomon at one point had a fleet of ships. Really, though, they were desert people. They were not seagoing, and so this one's different. And this one doesn't kind of cascade into their sin and redemption. It starts with and cascades into God's sovereignty, and God's still saving the people, even though they weren't sinning. God still chose to sovereignly save them. Let's look at verse 23. Others, so this is the fourth picture of people that God has redeemed. Others went to sea in ships, conducting trade on the vast water. Very nice picture. They just went to sea. They left their homes. They were out doing ocean-going things, trading and fishing and transporting. And they were just out living their normal life. This is what they did. They saw the Lord's works, his wondrous works in the deep. Like you've been out in the ocean somewhere and you've just looked around like, 360 degrees, and it's like ocean everywhere. And they're like, wow, God is so big that he's created something I can't even see the end of. And they're recognizing the Lord's works and his wondrous works of the deep. And then everything changes in verse 25. He, God, spoke and raised a stormy wind. That stormy wind that God spoke and raised— stirred up the waves of the sea. This is not some coincidence. This is not a random stirring wind that brings up waves. This is God's storm. God spoke and raised a stormy wind. They were out there doing normal fishing things. They were out there trading. And God sovereignly brought this into their life. So God is sovereign in the bad, and God is sovereign in the good. And that's confusing sometimes, because we want God to be sovereign over all the good things, and we never want the bad things. But these people were just living normal lives when God brought something that we would consider bad. Verse 26, rising up to the sky, sinking down to the depths, their courage was melting away in anguish. So as high and as low as it could possibly go, they lost all their courage and they were in anguish. We would call this desperation. There's nothing left for them to do. And even in verse 27, they reeled and staggered like a drunkard and all their skill was useless. You know, I think about Jonah. You know, God had sent Jonah on a boat, like go to these people. And Jonah tried to run only to find he was like running on a treadmill, like doing a lot of things but not getting anywhere. And 
reeled and staggered like a drunkard until God forced him back. These people are trying to do everything they can, and their skill was useless. Professionals, like professional sailors, doing everything they can only to find out there's nothing left that I can do. They were helpless. They had done everything they could do to try to save themselves, and still they were not saved. Right? That's familiar, right? We, we've done everything we can try to do to save ourselves, only to find out we cannot save ourselves, that we are unable to save ourselves. Paul says it this way, a very similar thing, but gives a purpose for it. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, and 10 is perfected in war. They rise up for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All of the sailors, with all of their professional ability and experience, find out they cannot do it. That they are weak. And in their weakness, they find something different. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble. During their trial, during things in this fourth picture, that's where they've gone wrong. They extended all of their abilities to the furthest they could, only to find out that they were wrong, that they were incapable, and they tried to do everything they could, only then to turn to God. It reminds me of the canary in a coal mine. You know that when the canary stops chirping, the toxic gas has built up to a level that you soon will die. So their first response was not to turn to the Lord. It was their last response after the canary died. And our first response should be in times of trouble and times of trial to first turn to the Lord. We can learn by these examples that we don't have to walk in the wilderness endlessly, that we can turn to the Lord. In verse 28, he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. Just like Jesus, when he was on the boat going across the sea, the disciples were, you know, scared that they were going to get capsized and die. And Jesus gets up and he's like, shh, just relax, waves. And everything's fine. He's sovereign over the waves. He stills them. Waves grew quiet. And then he guided them to the harbor they longed for. They were safe, they were anchored, and they were protected in a harbor that God took them to a safe place, that God anchored them in a place where they were now immovably faithful, that they were protected from whatever other storms may come. In the harbor is where they found safety. And certainly, we too find safety when we trust the Lord and we cry out to him and we allow him to lead us to his safe harbor. We can drop anchor, we can relax, because we trust that God is sovereign even over the storms of our life, even over the trials that he may bring up for reasons that we don't understand. That God is still sovereign even in all of those things. And again, their response is to give thanks to the Lord for his faithful love and his wondrous works for all humanity. They exalt him in the assembly of the people and praise him in the council of the elders. A problem, they cry out to God, God saves them, and they give thanks to God. It's a pattern that we can learn from, and hopefully we can cut out most of the 
self-afflicted problem part. That when the first sign of danger, when something goes bad, we turn to the Lord immediately. Because we know that he is sovereign. There's nothing that happens that's outside of his ability to control. All things, whether nature, justice, salvation, people, fertility, rulers, family, or injustice. Those next few verses kind of give a list of all the different parts that God has shown he is sovereign over. And certainly there are thousands and thousands more because there's nothing that God is not sovereign over. The very last verse, verse 43, I see it as either a blessing or a curse. Let whoever is wise pay attention to these things and consider the Lord's acts of faithful love. You will either do that and say, I want to be wise and recognize what God is teaching, recognize his faithful acts of love, or not, or not. And then the curse is, you're not attentive to God's faithful love, to the acts and the things that he has done. So my prayer for us is that we would see the good things that God does that we would see what we consider bad things. And in all things, our very first response is to turn to God and trust that he will rescue from our distress and from our troubles and from our storms and from every trial that life brings to us. Let's pray. Lord, we know that your love for us is unending, that you are faithful when we are faithless, Lord, we ask that you would continue to show us through your sovereignty that you have control of all things, that we need not worry or be concerned, that we can trust you and turn to you and cry out to you. And in our crying out and in our prayer to you, we commit those things to you and let you have them, that we would trust you and trust that you are over and superior and have absolute control over everything in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.